back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. And a big welcome for me, Mark Woods, to the MVP cast. Thanks so much for listening to us. We are brought as ever in association with our good friends at Total Environmental Compliance. Check out their whole range of services for all matters green at tcompliance.co.uk. Now, of course, if you like the podcast, please do subscribe via your podcast provider. And if you can, please give us a rating on it and a review as well. It really does help. And if you want to get the post up, our new regular email newsletter direct into your inbox, lots of exclusive news and features, go to our website at mvp247.com. Now, great guest this time out. He is one of the brightest young coaching minds in the women's WBBL. He is spreading the gospel of hoops throughout North Sea England, and he has the Eagles flying high. He is Newcastle Eagles head coach, Chris Bunted. Welcome to the MVP cast, Chris. Oh, thanks very much, Mark, for having me, and um, what a lovely introduction. I think that's the first time I've been called a, a basketball genius mind, so thank you. <laughs> um, same as we've asked everyone, how has, um, how has lockdown, how has COVID been viewed, particularly in the WBBL, which is, um, has been much affected by the pandemic? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I think it's uh, it's been a fantastic outlet, you know, balancing um, sort of family life and, and my full-time job. That having basketball has been a, a fantastic outlet, meeting with, meeting with like-minded people. And, you know, personally, I think we, we did a release with the Eagles, but I felt 100% safe with the roadmap that GB Basketball England and the Eagles put in place in terms of safety and, and like, you know, making sure that we abide by the rules that we're in. So, like, you know, every club has their own views and, and you, we respect everyone's views with COVID because everyone's been affected by it differently. But you know, I've been uh, very, feel very fortunate that we're able to continue to play and train in, in safe environments and it's been a blessing. For those people who don't know, I mean, obviously the club has been part of the Eagles ecosystem for, for a couple of years now, but what's in practical terms, how much do you guys as, as the women's team interact get benefits from, you know, collaborate and share ideas with the men's team? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So we, we've we always been employed. So when we go back to Team Northumbria, where there was myself as the women's coach and Mark Stutel as the men's division one coach, we were actually always employed by the Eagles. So the university paid uh, the Newcastle Eagles like a service level agreement and they, they managed us. So, you know, we've always been a part of that family. However, at that point, it was very hard for the Eagles to commercialize anything because of the university's policies in terms of ticketing or venues and staffing. So when we were based at Team Northumbria, the, the, the whole uh, program wasn't to make money or to be commercialized. It was as an outlet for our student athletes, uh, which was the perfect model at the time. And then we go back what, three years, I think, or two and a half years. We, we were, you know, the university went through some changes and um, women's basketball was like very fortunate to be taken fully over by the Newcastle Eagles, who then took on the responsibility of paying for referees, um, travel, or you know, licensing of players, um, because the players would still be coming for the university. But of course, as we know, any good player doesn't just want to play 13 box games; they want to you know play in a competitive league, which the WBBL is. So, so like since that point, the benefits have been you know superior, and it's a shame that COVID hit because we were doing a very good job. You know, credit to Dan Black and Paul Blake, really commercialising the game. We were getting about 200 fans at games, bringing in sponsors on the back of the men. So, 
So it's always going to be little steps. And, you know, there's always people, you know, on our team in the organization that think, you know, the women need to be valued equally and they need to do this. But in all honesty, there's not the business support for it. People would much rather go and see men's play. They'd much rather put their hand in the pocket for men's. And it's just going to be time where we change that narrative. And hopefully we continue to do so. But the support from the club has been outstanding. How, how do you find that that battle? Because we talk so much about this this challenge that British basketball has, and particularly below the BBL, but the BBL kind of included as well, is to get people to pay, to get people to see the value in a game, in, in whether it's at a junior level, whether it's women's league at a senior level, whether it's even international basketball as well. How, how do you try to shape that narrative that, a, obviously, the WBB is a product worth watching and believing and investing in, but also that if you come to a game, you should expect to pay for it. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, every, everyone probably has in their clubs, they'll have their own views on it. And I think the Eagles do a very good job of saying, look, if you want to pay for it, like, like you would any men's game, like no one expects to walk into a men's game here uh, for free. And, you know, the amount of texts I've had from opposing teams, like the people, you know, I've been involved in basketball, saying, oh, look, can you please send me a code? For the, for the game and I, you know, I believe, again, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe it's 2.99 or 3.99 to watch our online. And it's like, if you really, if you really want to watch it, you'll pay like, and, you know, and it's, and it, those are the conversations you need to have at a club level to say, look, if you want to put a value on it, then start charging for these. And if people say, oh, well, it may reduce the people that watch it. Well, fine, then they wouldn't watch it anyway, would they? So if we want to commercialize this league, then you need to put a cost on it because as we know, regardless of how much some of the females in our league are getting paid, they play very good basketball and they deserve, you know, to be put on that same level. Now, whether people want to pay for it or not, it's on the clubs, it's on, it's on, you know, the companies to want to invest, but, you know, we need to put a price on it, otherwise we'll keep belittling ourselves. How much does that, I mean, I guess it's just in the brand, how much has it helped just having the Eagles brand, though, in terms of, Getting the interest because you know, University of Northumbria, which it was before we used to still work, of course, it, you know, it again, it sounds like a student team. If you go in the Eagles, people throughout Northeast England, people throughout England and beyond can have an understanding of that that's a professional club. How much, much is that the leverage of that brand worked in your favor? Oh, it's uh, you know, twofold. It's been it's been excellent being on board with them for the past two and a half years in terms of taking their name and, you know, being associated with them. You know, Dan and Paul are very much, you know, we want to be one team. So, you know, whatever the kit is that the men are having, obviously the women, we have the same. Uh, we train in the same venue now, which has been a blessing because of COVID as we can't get into university. So on a typical year, we would train at the university, mainly because it's more central for all my athletes to be there. Uh, the Eagles are very good at allowing us to have shooting uh, time and to use the gym, but in terms of travel, it, it can sometimes be a little bit tough. So um, the, to have that brand, like you say, the instant recognition, we, we've gone up in the fans, like we maybe have seven um, at the university um, because there was no marketing. What this team Northumbria, you know, is it, what league are they playing? Whereas like you say, the second you mentioned Newcastle Eagles, the, the most winningest, I know it's an American word in 18 in the, in the BBL, then you know people want to be involved in it and you know like i said before covid hit we were getting 200 people at games like it was nice for me growing up in the area and i very much consider hexham newcastle as my home to have young girls coming to be able to watch people that they could aspire to be whereas at the university for all the, you know the university without the university we wouldn't have a newcastle eagles team by the way but you know the eagles offer that opportunity to allow great role models and we've had some very good players through 
still help develop that in the northeast, and that's what I want to continue to do. I mean, go back to I think it was 20, 2018, 2019. You know, Northumbria you know, had you know the brand was theirs on the team. Obviously, there was a point where they they were going to scale back their involvement, and you had an insight into the decision making process. What, from their point of view, wasn't working? Yeah, from the university. Mm. So the the narrative changed. So you know, I've been fortunate because I worked inside there with scholarships you know i could see the money that was being spent now in terms of the offer for student athletes we have the same exact scholarship budget so Northumbria university has the same scholarship budget that it did when it had its national league teams to now having zero national teams so the emphasis is still on the student what they realized at that time we had um, an nsl team a very uh, football team that played in the in the northern league we had two national league volleyball teams two national league water polo teams and obviously two national basketball teams. So the cost of those programs were nearing, for, for non-student activities were probably nearing the 700,000 pounds. So in terms of the university thinking, could that be better spent in widening participation? Whether I agree with that or not, yes, it could. You could put on more sports. So instead of engaging the 198 scholars we had, you could engage a lot higher percentage of the 16,000 students we have on campus. So I think the decision from the university, even though I'm very much an elite sports person and I'm not particularly interested in grassroots, I can understand that that decision wholeheartedly. I think the timing of it and allowing the students, the potential students to know was the one area that let them down. Because as we know, people make their decisions on universities by, you know, before Christmas, because then they have to have their UCAS application submitted. So to have all these students who were coming to take part in a national league program, whether that was water polo, whether that was basketball, volleyball, NSL, I think that was the uh, the one sticking point that, that let the university down from the decisions that be. But, you know, moving on from that, we're in the same sort of position we were. We're still in the top 10 for Bucks, which is what was important to the university. And we still have our focus sports in those in those main sports that we had. So, you know, the university probably think that it, it was a good decision. I tend to agree. I just think the communication, as with any good business, and the timing was the thing that let them down. You're still employed at the university, as we said, in, in, in international recruitment, and a lot of what you do is with, with sports scholarships. I mean, even when we go back to my student days, which is considerable time ago now, but it was, there's always been sports scholarships in this country, but it was principally Oxford and, and, and Cambridge, a little bit from other universities like, like Durham or Bath, but with sports universities, Loughborough as well. I mean, now most universities seem to have one in some shape or form, but... What's the benefit? I mean, you're quantifying you're bringing in. I mean, yes, it's, it's nice to, to win at university sport, but again, outside of Oxford and Cambridge, there's probably not a revenue stream there that's of any huge note. The the promotion of, of, of student sport is still, it's, it's not nothing compared to it is in, in, in the US and you know, in a few other countries as well. So, you know, from a university point of view, what will they get out of it? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, every university will be able to answer that differently. So, you know, for some universities like um, your Nottingham's, your Durham's, your Loughborough's, I think, you know, they, they love to have the number one in sports, you know, recognition, as we know, like the way the box leagues works is, for example, my women's team were in the Premier Division, we were current uh, national championship holders when that last season happened, we were going back to the final last year. So to win your league and then box Prem, you get 50 points. And then if you were to win your championship, you get a third of 50 points. So for example, Women's basketball at our university would like to bring in 100 points every year. Now, across all the sports, across all the leagues, the further down the leagues you go, it carries less points. 
but obviously all those points gets tilted up. So typically, and I probably could be wrong, but I think Loughborough win by country mile, mainly due to individual sports. In terms of swimming, obviously they've got the powerhouse of swimming there. So like they would like to say we are number one in the UK uh, for sport, you know, for competitive sport. Great. Nottingham do uh, are very similar. I think they're second, uh, getting very close in terms of the amount of money and infrastructure they put in. So it depends on like the university's narrative of what they want. From our point of view, we want to stay in the top 10 and for a polytechnic, if you like, or a new university, you know, that's pretty big as, as you've alluded to, most of the resident universities are there. But now we have a focus of, um, sorry, I've got something flying around. We have a focus of um, six sports that we want to be number one in or it's, you know, in the top, however it may be in the country. But I think the biggest um, focus would be international recruitment. So from our university, you know, for the sports we have, there's very much an American market. So to have uh, like American students coming in, especially in the time of Brexit, uh, international students coming in, obviously they pay a higher tuition fees. So for, for my point of view, and the, the way I see it at our university is, you know, it's to bring in international students. Of course, we want to be the best we can be in our six sports, but I think it helps attract those students. Do you feel, I mean, even obviously the, the, the link is not as strong between the Eagles and Northumbria, you still get access to scholarships. A lot of your players are on scholarships, you know, coming, coming from overseas. When we talk about the sustainability of, of the league, could you do what you're doing with the Eagles if you didn't have that Northumbria infrastructure? Right now, we couldn't. No, you know, we're all aware of that. If uh, with the university, I have a, a sizable, uh, not the biggest by any means, scholarship budget, but I'm able to bring in, uh, I would say, seven players uh, on any given year um, who would compete both for the university and the Eagles. And then we have a small infrastructure of people who would either come to maybe be a part of our second team good young British players who didn't get the opportunity to go to the States that would fill out our our bench uh, for the WBBL. So without the university right now, we would be able to run a an Eagles team, but it would be far less competitive than a, a Caledonia, for example. So, you know, up there when they had the Commonwealth money, they had like a very good team. Look, you had Robin Lewis, Sarah Thompson, Claire Paxton, D. Hayward, uh, you had Trisha Rose, you had an American, you know, you had a, a team that should definitely have made playoffs. Um, but now the, the narrative has changed there where you've got the best young Scottish players going there and whether they win or not, they're very competitive. I think that would be a model that we would have to have, but I don't think we have the players in the region right now to even be anywhere near as competitive as that. So it, it wouldn't look good in the WBBL. Where do you, you get those players? Because, I mean, we all admire the Eagles ecosystem and the grassroots and all the schools and little mini clubs and everything that's around you the beyond newcastle and you know it's been so effective in in obviously feeding back into the commercial success of newcastle in in building the brand of the eagles etc but at what point and this i guess this applies to the men's team as well but at what point or what's what's going to unlock that becoming the funnel by which you get great young talent you come through the doors, you play for Newcastle, you then become international players, may go on somewhere else. But why are we not seeing that harnessed in a way after probably a decade and more of having that, that, that probably we would have expected to? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. And, and you know, I'm not, uh, I'm employed by the club. I have good conversations with Paul. I, I had more conversations with Ian this year, but I'm not 
too sure, you know, uh, the amount that goes on. I know we're, you know, in terms of Hoops for Health, I did used to work for the Eagles as a Lean East Outreach Officer when I left uh, Brighton University for one year in the community. So the, the, the outreach is there. I, I generally think, you know, if we look back, we've had Ross Wilson, who was a very promising talent, sat on the bench and then obviously went to Rice University. I came back did some stuff at Durham. We have Tosan, who's been around during this sort of lockdown, is back over in the in the States now. So there are some players produced, but probably not the amount that you see in other programs. I think Ian has done a very good job with the uh, EABL squad or ABL. I, I can't actually remember which league they compete in. As um, I don't follow too much the men's side, but I feel that that men's team is growing. Like the Eagles widened it from one college to a cluster of schools in the northeast where if you're good enough you will play on that team so i i generally feel the link is getting better and you see uh, i mean eddie came through eddie matthew came through our system and myself and mark still were at time at college when i was the snc coach and mark still was ahead of basketball you know there was a lot of players that were coming through that system and, and we see them going to the eagles bench sean murphy's been with uh time at gates college with ian mcleod um, you've got timber, so there is like in the men's, it's starting to show in those sort of eighth, ninth, or ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth players. I think could be something for whatever reason with ourselves, it hasn't happened. Whether that's um, the growth of the game, we did have at one point a player called Sarah Bennett before my time, even with Team Northumbria, who was the, the women's out, outreach officer for the Eagles, and she did a fabulous job of engaging young female players and at that point we probably had more join like division one and two team at, at that point probably not at the standard they would be now but she engaged that community that hasn't happened for a while but this year just gone the eagles employed chris applewhite as a women's outreach officer so hopefully over the next few years we get back to that developing the women's game and then having more of a pool we do have a young player on our team but unfortunately she's been hit by a few injuries this year called yemesi who is very promising she was in the england 15 so, you know, hopefully over time that happens. But I, I also think that it's having coaches of an ability to to actually better them. If you look at places like London, where there's a ton of coaches um, who've either had good experiences, you know, we're a little bit isolated here. I feel we have some good coaches and we have some coaches who want to learn and get better, but they're not quite at the level of developing. Because as we know, you need your very best coaches to be at that level to develop them. Otherwise, maybe there's not good training habits and, that's not me being disrespectful for any of the coaches we have in our system, but you know we're we're kind of isolated here in the northeast. Um, they've been doing a better job in terms of uh, Kareem was a women's coach who was involved in some of the junior England, and now what I've tried to do this year, uh, Alison Gorel coached our under 18s team when it was happening, and to have someone like her say, look, this is what you know, these are training habits. This is where you should be aiming to get to. Uh, this is you know this is how we want to go about it. They can see firsthand she's still one of the best players in our league, you know, hands down by what she does at both ends of the court. So to have someone like her feeding back to the players is instrumental. And that's how I want to continue to grow our program. I want players on my team to be the people teaching the next generation at that school of excellent national league level, because I generally feel that's probably what we've been missing. Is that going to be a tricky balance in your head? Because we've seen, you know, some teams this year, I mean, COVID has affected it, but we'll probably see more of the transparency in this when it, things settle down a bit more hopefully next season but there is that there's a greater investment in some teams in, in, in players and particularly in bringing in a higher caliber of import player as well you also have the the funnel idea that WBBL should be the head of a pyramid that it has a huge role to play 
in development. You've seen Caledonia is probably the, is, is probably the best example where it's really all about development. And the, the, what happens on the court is the byproduct of that rather than the focus as such. Barbie Angers may disagree with that, but that's, that's how it seems there. How, how tricky do you think that, that balance is going to be in the next few years about the, B, the WB having to be more commercial? And it definitely has to be because if it wants to be sustainable, you have to get more sponsored, more people come to the door, a, a proper TV deal at some point. But also knowing that if basketball in this country is really going to flourish, the league has to start being the, the way that we develop our best young talent. Yeah, and like it, it's, uh, I have this conversation with, with Mark Stu a lot because, you know, if you look across leagues in Europe, for example, Romania, some of their under 20s will get paid higher than import players because you have to have an under 20 homegrown player on the court for the first half. So it's a fantastic idea which would only develop their country and they've done a lot better in the women's game in terms of where they finished in the European Championship, whether it's A or B. So I quite like that idea, but I think it's not about. I don't think it's about the league. I think Andy Webb and, and Jamie Press, who are heavily involved in the WBBL in terms of the organisation, they just sit there. Whereas it's the clubs, as franchises, we make a push for what we feel and how we feel it should be driving. And unfortunately, every club has their own opinion on what that looks like, what their goals are, why they have a team in the league. So for me personally, uh, speaking on just solely on myself and not even really as a Newcastle Eagles, is I want it to be a commercial league because we want it to grow now. You know, eventually you want players to get paid, we want them all to have housing, we want them all to have cars. Some clubs may offer that, some clubs don't. But for me, I think if you have a top product, you'll attract the best players to be here. So if you attract those best players and you have British players on your team, you're only going to get better. Like those British players are only going to get better. Should we say there should be one British player on the court all the time? Maybe. It's something I wouldn't support right now because I'd probably be weakened if I had to have a British player on the court the whole time. Is it good for the game? Most definitely. So should we do that? But for me, the whole bigger issue is like Leicester have done a very good job getting Holly Winterburn back. For whatever, you know, for whatever reason, whether she didn't like Oregon, uh, whether she's more happy being at home, you know, they managed to put a very good attractive offer, offer for her. She's studying at Loughborough University. She's playing for the line. It's a fantastic set for her. That's one in, in like none that would normally happen. So my thoughts and what I think should happen is, however, basketball in and GB basketball can do it, there should be funding for the top 12, 20 depending on what it is men and women at under 18 level so you can say to those top 12 players for them and say okay if you stay in this country we will give you x amount of money and you can use that on either living accommodation and then you can choose a university that you want to study in that you think will better you as a basketball player so for example if we just look at women's okay you have leicester you have cardiff you have edinburgh you have this opportunity to get your education so if they don't do a degree at northumbria you can choose here and you're going to be in a pathway where you can continue to develop. But in this country, universities don't have, I don't have that money. If I was to offer Holly Winterburn an undergraduate course fee of 9250 that would take out just over a third of my budget. So it's not sustainable for me, whereas I can bring in Americans to be competitive on very little because they've had full scholarships and they don't have any eligibility left. So that's why I'm successful in books, because I bring over about seven Americans because they want an opportunity to play they want to get a degree and they want to, you know, compete that way. So I think it's the governance in terms of the governing body. And they're very keen on saying, oh, you shouldn't go to the States or do your due diligence. Like some people will come back. They don't enjoy it. They've got bad coaching. And that could be the same here. I might be a terrible coach. People might not want to come 
come and play for me. So it's, you can't really say that. Whereas in America, you take basketball away from it, they're getting their education paid for. You can't put a cost on that. They're getting anywhere from 50 to 90,000 pounds worth of scholarship, whether they like it, whether they agree with it, whether they like the training, whether they win, they're successful, they're getting free education. So like my model is, you know, I was speaking to Jesse Yates, who was at uh, Manchester, then, then Charmwood. She's going to be coming to us next year for a master's. And that's the only way I can do it because masters are cheaper. I can split it over two years and she continues with the education and will get an opportunity to play. But we can't do that undergrad. So you either go sub 18, which you bought now these in the Charmwood Academies, to like keep under 18s who are good, but are they really at the level of the WBBL? Not normally. They could be good bench players. But that that's where we fall down. And I think that's where there needs to be some investment. Let's keep players here if it's the right decision for them, but they need money to be able to do that. Because with, in terms of the spots, I mean, there is going to be, there are some changes coming in the WBL in terms of the amount of, you know, import spot players. I mean, it's going to, to three. I mean, you'll probably explain this better than I do, but, you know, obviously there's European players, you know, had special rules up to now. I mean, I guess explain to us what, what is that change and how do you think it'll impact? Yeah, so my understanding, and I think we're all still trying to get our heads around it, including me and I speak to Andy a lot, and again, not Andy Webb's decision, it was voted on by the clubs. So we are allowed three import players now um, with two uh, international or European players if they have a, a right to be in the country. So from now with Brexit, your three spot players can be anyone in Europe, anyone in America uh, that you can bring in and they have a visa to be here. Of course, we still have a stupid archaic rule, in my opinion, that is 18 months out of college or playing in a league that England basketball or the home office view better, which I think is, is a crazy rule. So if someone graduated two years ago and you know maybe they had a bad injury or whatever it is, we can't bring them in. So that's one of the first things I disagree with. Um, as a coach, we should be able to bring in anyone that we would like to in those spots, regardless of what they've done. Uh, so if Brittany Griner had a baby and was out for two years and then basketball and say, oh no, sorry, she's passed her 18 months eligibility. I think it's a crazy rule because as coaches, we should have the decision to bring them in. We're not taking spots away. We're going to bring people in anyway, so allow us to make that decision. That's one of them. And then with these new spots, so for example, I have Deborah Rodriguez who kindly joined us, you know, and we've had a few people leave and injuries. She has a leave to remain here as a teacher, so she's able to fill one of those other two spots. So she's not a national player or like a, a GB player, but she has an EU passport, but she has a right to be here. So what that means is for me, it stops recruitment of uh, like the two Europeans. So now you have three people you can bring in and then you can bring in uh, someone who happens to be in the country. So you really narrow that ball. So will it be good? Maybe we'll develop more or people will find loopholes in it. The other thing that's disappointing for me is the, the rule on GB. So I have Georgia Smith this year, who is a GB British passport holder. Her mum is British. She was born in, I don't know, I think it was Essex somewhere. And she's had a British passport since birth, but she's lived in Australia. Because, because she has never played domestically for two years here, uh, under 19, or been involved in any GB team, she would now classify as an, either an import player or those two spots. So she has a right to be in the country, but she's not classified as a British player. So she has to take one of those two spots which I, I personally don't get. I think, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy model. And, and obviously, legally, they would probably say that, well, if I wanted to bring her back, then she would be one of those two spots players. So we're not saying you can't have her, but she has to be one of these spot players. And the reason that annoys me so much is 
that half of our GB women's senior team are nationalized or people who have passports who have never played in this country uh, in junior basketball. So for me, like it's great and we find them uh, like a Sam Roscoe. We would never have probably had her in this country if she didn't have a British passport. She comes to play for Manchester, great job by Jeff finding her. And then she actually has a cap for the GB team in the previous windows, you know, because she was selected. So now we say because she has a cap, she's able to be just a British player. But then we're opening up a can of worms where we where we can't. Like we surely we want to bring British players into this league, regardless of how they have heritage, to see if they're good enough to support our British team because that's the model we've been using for the past few decades. So I, for me, I just I really don't understand that, and it's a little frustrating. Yeah, I'd be interested to see that going up to a legal challenge, but uh, I'm not sure any clubs quite deep pocketed enough to do that. Um, Let's talk about coaching pathways as well, because obviously you started in student basketball and then you've worked your way up. And you know we've seen some coaches in this country come through the WBBL and, and move on to try and you know better their careers. Vanessa Ellis, you got runner up in the Austrian in Cup later this month after going overseas in Sheffield last year. I mean, how how do you view this coaching pathways? Because we always you know talk about players and we talk about how we can develop them, whether it's a home soil, etc. But there always seems to be that invisibility of, of what we're doing or what is being done below the surface to upskill our coaches, to give them opportunities to learn and, and, and grow and develop and be better. How have you find the system that supported you or is supposed to be supporting you? No, that's a good question. I, to be honest, I don't really have any complaints and I can definitely take you through through the journey I've had. I've been very fortunate or whether it's fortunate, whether it's the fact I'm hardworking, whether I put myself out there, but you know, there's always going to be people who feel they should do things better. They should be a GB coach. You know, I, I definitely feel for the past three years, um, I applied for a head coaching role after working with Chema for for three years as an assistant, whether it was with Twenties or the Commonwealth, and you know that that eluded me because you know apparently all the the lines were uh, I I had never been in charge of a performance program despite the fact I have a performance program in books. Now, how, how you view that league is different. So it's frustrating because I personally felt I was ready definitely last year. Previous years, when I've applied for head coaching roles at the GB standard, I can honestly look back and say I probably wasn't ready and I wouldn't have managed it well. So, like, I have a little frustration and I have a little frustration on how things are communicated because every year I say, look, I would like feedback. Please tell me so I can improve. Whether I agree with the feedback I get or not is irrelevant because if I have it, it's up to me whether I take it on board. But for the past three years, I've not been given anything. And in the last one, I made it very clear to say, look, if you, like, please give me feedback. I would like to know so I can go away and do whatever it is that you feel that I'm lacking. And I had the, the um, I've got the performance pathway manager for basketball Scotland say, Chris, I 100% get you an email. It's Christmas right now, but by the end of January, you'll have it. And that was uh, over a year ago. And I still haven't. So it's just like, I just, you know, communication is the biggest flaw. So if I reverse that in terms of my experiences with GB and the opportunities I've had, Chema Bouchetta is one of the best coaches I've ever worked with because of his ability to communicate. In fact, he cares about the people in his program. So he is very good at keeping his circle very small because as a psychologist, he understands that he wants people on the same page as him. And he does that so, so well. He will keep in contact with all of his players, whatever leagues they're playing in. And I think fundamentally that's what falls down for us in terms of national team, whether it's players, whether it's coaches, is that ability to communicate. But then if we go back further, the way I got into the national teams was that my trade was a strength and conditioning coach. 
I was very fortunate to be involved with uh, the Tall and Talented scheme ages ago with Warwick Khan, and I like gave up my time voluntarily. And he said, oh, look, would you like to be involved with an England 15s with uh, coach uh, Jesse Suzanne? And that was my, like, I always wanted to be a coach, and I was coaching University of Newcastle Women's at the time. Um, but that was a really great eye-opener. It was like, oh, my gosh, there's so much more that goes into coaching. And I ever realized Jesse is one of the best program runners and leaders I've ever had the privilege to work with in terms of how we organize it, how he turns around the national team training camp with the numbers we had to get people ready for a tournament because that's very different to a full season where you can have whatever it is in terms of prep. So I was very fortunate to get involved that way and then, you know, continue to give up time for free as you do. Unfortunately, in, in this country, everything is uh, zero cost. You get you don't have to pay out of pocket to be there typically, but you know, no money associated, time away from family, holidays from your job, um, but a very, you know, very fortunate. And then uh, I applied for the under-20s and Warwick Khan said I should apply for the under-20s with Karen Burton. And that was, you know, a fantastic experience for me learning. Uh, you know, I've never been at, at any international level as a coach. So to have that was great. Working with some players who were currently on my team, Montgomery team at the time, like Sarah Thompson, was just great. So people could look at that and rightly so could say, oh, he only got that opportunity because he knows Warwick can. And maybe or maybe, or maybe not that was the case, who knows? So so I think we, we don't help ourselves in this country. If you're going to have interviews, do interviews and appoint the best person and be happy with whatever reason you make, make sure that's public to everyone. If you don't want to have interviews and you want to select your best coaches as a federation, do that. So many other countries in Europe do that and have a pool of coaches they work between. I don't think anyone would care what you do, but don't do the in-between. Like just be happy with what you're going to do. And that's all I would say in terms of uh, the coaching pathway. Uh, basketball England, sorry, last thing, Basketball England have supported me a lot this year. Uh, I wanted to do the FECC. There's certain criteria on the FECC that you're supposed to hit, whether all the candidates that have been given it in the past have that, I don't know. Um, but uh, they reached back in touch and put me on the UK coaching um like program this year, which has been, uh, it's been challenging because of COVID, because of managing uh, my son and managing work. I haven't been able to attend all seminars. I'd much rather be in person and have the time to do that. But, you know, I'm very fortunate for asking and thinking of me and putting me on that program. Do you think, I mean, Chema made this, this point on the on this podcast, actually, not that long ago, about other coaches showing other coaches and being accessible. And, you know, as he said before, you know, for international games as, as much as possible, pre-COVID, of course, that, if you wanted to come and watch his practice, you could do it. If he you know, wanted to come and learn from his practice and ask questions about it afterwards, he would do that. I mean, it's been something that's talked about for years. I mean, Mark Dunning was talking about this 20 years ago when he, when he was, uh, the, the Basketball Coaches Association was much more active. But I mean, do you think that's still, have you moved away from that at all where coaches in this country notoriously are very closeted and secretive about what they do? I, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I generally don't know, but I'll happily give you my opinion as I was uh, happy to do. So I think, like, for example, Chema is great. Like, anyone reached out to him, they would come and watch and and they would, he would talk to them. You know, it's fantastic. And I'd like to think, you know, I've reached out to coaches and they said, oh, yeah, come down and have a watch. And you always pick up something from anyone. Even when I did interviews at Time Met for our basketball coach there at the time, um, you know, I can pick, there were some great drills, whether it was coached well, because they maybe don't have the level of experience that I'd be fortunate to have. You think, oh, that's a really good drill, actually. Or whatever. So, so we're all capable of learning, and I think sharing best practices is good. Unfortunately, in this country, I think we're all, like you say, a little bit guarded, or we're scared of 
what other people might think or we're scared of losing our play like a big thing I, I believe in this I mean in the northeast we've got no one near us so I don't really know but it's about losing players or like you know if you bring a kid into a charm or a barking you're essentially getting four and a half k for that college so like recruitment becomes key and one thing I've always said is if I can't offer you something like if I can't offer someone something and they choose to go somewhere else that's great because that's the decision you make so all I can ever do is say this is what we do at Northumbria or the Eagles this is how much we train this is what you get this is what I'd like you to do and then if you want that, great. If not, please explore other options. But I think too many people aren't that way inclined or too many coaches have too big an egos and they like, oh, I can't learn from this guy. He's an idiot. And you hear that all the time. Like if you, if I speak to coaches, it's like, oh, no, no, I don't rate what this guy does. You know, this is, and, and that's great because we all have our own opinion, but like at least be like working together. Like I know a lot of people think, oh, Chris isn't a great coach, uh, but he's a very good recruiter. Absolutely no problem. I'm probably the best recruiter in the WBBL and maybe in the country for what the budgets we have. But I also know basketball and I know what my flaws are, which are a lot. And I know that I want to get better on them, but I think too many people just aren't self-aware and, and they're too scared to go outside of their comfort zone and say, oh yeah, that's actually maybe something I should do. Do you take an inspiration from your very good chum? You mentioned a few times, Mark, still. I mean, being involved... In Great Britain is one thing. The fact he's you know stepped in as effectively interim head coach with with Nate Ranking stuck in America. I mean, you must watch him get well done. One hundred percent. I mean, he's been a phenomenal inspiration to me and someone I'm I'm very fortunate I can pick up the phone to have a conversation with. But, you know, you even look at, at that and, like, you know, he, if you, I mean, I'm sure you'll have Mark and you just spoke to Mark Lowe's, like, he is his own harshest critic. Like, at every time, like, oh, I should have missed, I should have not. And even though he's not the head coach and he's, you know, acting head coach, the amount of communication he does to these GB guys across all the leagues, whilst balancing being a program leader in a college education institute is, is remarkable. And then still for people to say, you know, whether it's social media, and everyone's entitled to their opinion, no problem. Oh, yeah, well, he beat a Germany team that didn't have, like, three of the best players. Right, but he beat a team that hasn't been beaten for 40 years, and it's you can only beat what's put in front of you, so we could either give him some credit or, like, oh, well, he hasn't been coaching in the um, in the national setup. So, like, is he our best candidate? One, I mean, yes, I'm going to be biased because he's my friend. However, he is one of the best coaches in the country, and you can ask any player that's come through his setup, whether they liked him when they came in or not. Everyone would have left going, he wanted the best for me, and he's developed me in a way that I'm able to go and play. And that's what I think is special about like Mark is that he will have that of everyone and he doesn't care about himself. His job is to get whatever team he has better and prepared and he does that better than anyone. And I always, always learn from him and it's just great having him in my corner. Well, I think it will be interesting. Now, given the experience he's got, at what point does he get a shot in the BBL? Because with respect to where he's coaching just now, there's a higher level for him. He's got the experience, but that is that the flaw in the system in this country that a coach like him who's come up, who's who's got good learnings, has got the experience, now gets his chance to to be at our highest level. Sure, and I think you know it's everyone's everyone's got their own uh, you know their own things that they have to balance. So in terms of um, let's say WBBL for myself, like let's say someone said, oh Chris, we'd like to come and be the WBBL coach down wherever it may be. Let's say Essex, even though Tom's doing a great job and I absolutely love Tom, but it's the other end of the country. The amount of pay, not that it's always about pay, the amount of pay involved in this country in women's basketball is so small that I would never leave my full-time job at Northumbria, which has fantastic like pension, security. I would never leave that for a basketball job in this country where you're probably talking 
the maximum is £16,000. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad wage, but that's not a wage that I could live off to support myself and my family. So my situation here in Newcastle is very good. I have a full-time job. The university is very appreciative of the coaching I do for the university and how it works hand-in-hand with the Eagles. So, like, and I have a young son who I wouldn't want to leave until, you know, he was 18. So I think, you know, unfortunately, everyone's situation is different, but that, that, that's my answer. Like, I would never, if I wasn't coaching in the Northeast, you wouldn't see me popping up anywhere else because it, would, it wouldn't make financial sense to do so. Would I be disappointed? 100%. I love coaching, but it's just, that, that's the reality. And then even if you look into the BBR, I don't know what the, what the wage caps are. Okay, you, you take out Plymouth and you take out London. Like, you know, what is it? Is it, is it much different to, um, you know, what people can earn in their career? And then obviously the, the short-sightedness of sport or, you know, the, you know, sport is a, you may one, two years and you're done. So it's all those things you have to balance up on top of family commitments and work. So it's, it's very interesting. I think it's a, it's a good question. It's funny. What, I guess that brings us to this final question. What is the next step for you? What's the, what's the ambition here? Do you know what, right now, um, I've gone through lots of ups and downs, especially beginning of this season. It, it's been tough to manage, and it's definitely not about about money at all. But there was a part of this year I was like, my gosh, there's a lot that, as we know, as coaches, we put into this, and it's not about financial. But it's like, well, actually, could I be putting this effort into my full time off? Now, fortunately, some of are great, and I, you know, have good uh, performance review scores from there. But you know, definitely basketball eats up a lot of my my time. Um, you know, recently, a, a, like a single parent. So like the other half of my time when I have my son is even more important than it ever was before. So like, I'm very happy with what I do right now. But I still have an itch to be a GB national team coach. I want to prove to myself that I have the capability to do that and to do it well, regardless of what, you know, whether it's a good recruitment year or good age gap or whatever, like that's one thing I would like to do. But I honestly don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, just, you know, they've got coaches setting the program and I think it's going to take time for the system to change. So I just want to continue to develop basketball in the Northeast for as long as I can. To be at the Eagles, I would love to have a similar dynasty to a to a fabulous Flanoy, you know, like he, he's like a pretty much a god up here on, on Tyneside and and I'm so passionate for the Eagles for everything they've ever done for me, whether that's junior when I played for Paul Douglas at PDSD, who was obviously at the Eagles. Like that's how I came into basketball. So it's all kind of full circle and they've always been there. So to develop it at Northumbria and Newcastle is something that I'm just passionate about. And until my son's 18, if uh, the WNBA came knocking then, 100%, I would take a big money <laughs> offer. But uh, until that point, I'm very happy just trying to develop basketball in this area and, and trying to push Newcastle Eagles to be as good and competitive for silverware as the men's team are. Ah, WNBA is only three months a year. You, you, you cope with that. Exactly, yeah, once, you get, once you get to 15, you won't want to talk to you anyway. It's all right. That's true. Yeah, very true. <laughs> well, we wish you continued success um, in everything you're doing um, in Newcastle and beyond. And um, thanks so much for joining us, Chris, on the MVP cast. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it. Have a great day. That's it for this edition. Brought to you as ever with our sponsors at Total Environmental Compliance. Find them on social media at T Compliance Limited or search them on Google. You can get all our previous editions via our website at mvp247.com and all your latest British basketball news. And you can also sign up there for our new newsletter at the post up as well. If you want to get in touch with me, reach out via Twitter at Mark Brittle. But thanks for listening to this edition of the MVP cast. I'll bring you another one soon. Bye bye.